Hello, welcome to the Heme Sapien podcast, where diverse perspectives in healthcare converge. My name is Mia Scott. And my name is Hamza Malik. And we will be discussing Alzheimer's, the inequities that target minorities, and how the Equity for Latinx Hispanic Healthy Aging Lab can help with Dr. Diaz Santos. Tell us a little bit about yourself mm-hmm. to start off. Yeah. Absolutely. So, born and raised in Puerto Rico. Um, I did my bachelor's degree in back in Puerto Rico on the, the main university. And as you can probably imagine, the resources and investment and in, in like professional advancement were very limited. So on my first gen, my parents completed some years of college. So I'm the first one with a PhD in my family. And I'm the only one in the States um, currently, and yeah, yeah, so my passion coming to being a, um, receiving a PhD in clinical psych with an emphasis in neuropsychology was because I saw my grandmother um, slowly die with uh, a medical complication of Alzheimer's back in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, it's like no one tells you anything, medical doc- doctors t- <laughs> I'm not well um, versed, I wanna say. I'm not in general about communicating what is happening to our loved ones. So I just started asking questions by myself and I went to grad school. And I think that that has been the passion of why I'm here in UCLA and now in neurology doing the type of work that I do. That's very inspiring. Thank you for sharing. I actually have a similar story, but I will not share since we only have limited time. And then Hamza. Uh, okay, so what is the equity for Latinx Hispanic? Sorry, uh, equity for Latinx Hispanic Healthy Aging, or ELHA lab? And what does your lab do? Where are you located? Mm-hmm. So the Ella lab is kind of like what I envision is my baby. Um, and it's very symbolic because the, my grandmother who passed away due to complications of Alzheimer's, her name was Estrella, so star. So I wanted to like keep her symbolism of what in, in the lab, in the name of my lab. So that I made it sure that it's like Ella, which can be transcribed to Aja. So it's the last couple of, um, of letters of her name. So the Ella Lab, um, I founded it um, last, um, when was it? Fall of 2021, when I moved and received a full academic appointment with neurology. And and so we are located at UCLA Neurology Department in the Reed Building, which is across the street of the uh, Reagan Hospital. So we're located in the, what they call it like South Campus. <laughs> uh, so we are right there in the medical school and within the department, we, we wanna make sure that the purpose of our lab is to anchor everything that we do in our communities, our, specifically our communities of color. Um, because the, the vast majority of, unfortunately of our biomedical science um, remains, the acronym is weird. It's a very homogeneous 
white, industrialized, highly educated. And these are the top, this is the data actually that um, is advancing the science. But when you look at our communities, our communities are still with a lot of needs that the medical field in the um, hospitals are not meeting. So when we talk about my lab and what we do is that we anchor everything community engagement, the, the needs of our communities, and then we work collaboratively to create programs that are actually meeting their needs in the sense of, in the areas of prevention. We wanna make sure that we are very versed in how can we prevent Alzheimer's uh, with the literature that tells us that 40% of, of, of the factors that can increase your risk of Alzheimer's can be changed throughout your life. So that's kind of my long story short to like explain Ella and what we do. Great, thank you so much for sharing that. I see that the events that led you to found this clinic is pretty much your own experience with your grandmother and Alzheimer's. And then you wanna better your community as well and keep everyone notified of how to better prevent this type of situation in your community. So I'm gonna skip that question, what's your role or what led you to found this clinic since we pretty much already discussed that. So the next question is, what is your role as part of the Ella community or Ella lab? And then how do you serve your target demographic? Even though you kind mm -hmm. of did touch on that a little bit, but please elaborate. Yeah, so in terms of the role of the Ella lab, I wanna say it, 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 it cost me a little bit because we are raised to be humble and uh, talk about our achievements are as women and women of color. So I'm the founder and director of the Ella Lab. Um, and, he's, and what we do is fascinating because we follow community participatory research approaches, um, very um, into decolonization of our own scientific methods and design. So, and we're very unique as a lab in neurology because we're the only one that does that um, in reality. So how do we do our, our work? Honestly, if I'm very, very candid, it always starts with, you know, checking yourself as a researcher, um, the biases that you have, that you have assimilated through your educational career because there are assimilation um, left and right of like, how do we view the world? Um, and how do we view others? And they need salvation. So the whole aspect of like, oh, we want to create like, oh, I want to be your savior. Uh, and that's how uh, researchers are actually trained, right? So for me and how I began this journey is to check myself, kind of like decolonize my whole mindset as a scientist and go back to the basics and understanding and reckon with the historical and current um, practices of abuse coming from that biomedical science and scientists. So, and I think that when we talk about um, the aspect of trust, I have been analyzing for a few years that it's like, oh, the, the, we have lost trust with our communities and the community doesn't trust us, but the onus is placed in our communities, right? And I'm like, no, the onus is on us to recognize that we represent a white institution that has been taking the land that doesn't belong to them, 
that have been taking data that doesn't belong to them to advancement of science, absolutely. But you know, advancement of science also comes with money and reputation and prestige and elitism. So those are the conversations that I start with my communities to for them to see that I'm very transparent and I can call, be called out on my biases. So then we can meet each other eye to eye and be like, okay, now that I can trust you because you're real and you don't have this like UCLA facade and uh, superiority, it's like, let's talk about business. And they just let it rip and be like, we need this and we need that and we need this. And we don't trust your institution <laughs> and we don't trust you, even though you're a Latina. And I'm like, I get it. I, I get it. So I want to say that that's like kind of the foundation of me and releasing all those um, schemas and then training my students and colleagues to do the same thing. So we don't perpetuate the same biases that we say that we're combating. Exactly. There is a lot of oppression against minority communities and no one really wants to have that conversation. And I'm so glad that you're able to freely speak that and defend your own community. And I guess as like a follow-up then, uh, what do you think can be done to build the trust of these people of color in kind of more equitable healthcare sources as they emerge? Honestly, that... Um... It goes as simple as show up, you know, is the aspect of like showing up, being humble, understanding who you are in those spaces. And it goes to the principles of how do we build relationships, right? Um, so it's kind of like, if we think about how we build our own relationships, you know that you're assessing the person right? You're like, oh, are you trustworthy? Are you full of yourself? Are you not full of yourself? It's like, if I tell you something, are you listening to me? Or do you want to be like, educate me left and right? And don't let me talk. It's like, literally, when we talk about our, like, how to engage our communities, it's like, basically, how can we just be human and have these, like, candid conversations among ourselves and that humanity is captured by our communities that have been, you know, discriminated against and like left and right for generations. And I was like, oh, okay. So you you have been doing your work, but it, it takes a long time, right? It's building that trust <clears throat> or building your own identity of being trustworthy constantly because in our communities, what history and current practices say, like researchers and scientists and clinicians will go to community when they need something. They get something and they disappear, right? And our communities always remember. And our older generations, you know how we are, like we talk left and right. Our older women and men, they talk so if they they will always remember so you always want to make sure it's like okay i need to make sure that i'm consistent and i'm showing up and i'm just here to work alongside you i'm not here to impose anything 
say, what do you need? And then I'll utilize the and leverage the resources that UCLA has given me to make sure that your brain health and longevity is taken care of. That is very important to note that researchers, they need to focus on that in the future, that instead of just going into a community and pretty much grabbing, taking and leaving, they should be more involved, more long-term and actually want to promote their health and well-being. And so back to your LA lab, I was wondering how do you create a lab? Who do you go to? What's, what are the steps in making your own lab, just in case someone that's listening wants to kind of start their own? I love this question <clears throat> because when I, I started building my lab, there's no blueprint, literally. <clears throat> I apologize. There's no blueprint. And because my, my lab is so community anchor in neurology, even neurology doesn't know how to help me. They're like, so... You don't have a wet lab, you don't use animals, you don't use like cells. Um, so for me, it was a trial and error. And then as a first generation, and I don't have um, like parents or family members that have been building labs, I, I just went with trial and error, but always with the intentionality. It's like, I wanna make sure that the name of my lab means something, that conveys something. The uh, the my lab the lab my my logo, I was very intentional. I was like, okay, we need to support our communities of color when they're like in grad school. So I hire an amazing neuroscientist grad student, Asian American in UC um, Davis that is also a, a design graphic designer. And she designed the brain. And then we have a butterfly because butterflies in different communities means transformation, evolution, humanity, you know? So it's like, oh well, yeah, we're transforming our brain in a very holistic way to ensure that we are living longer and healthier. So I think that no one gave me the, the blueprint to, to build my lab. I just went to back to what's your intention? What's your intention? And then building it from it. And I could obviously asking for resources, the last space and the computers and the printing and all that and looking at finances and it, because everything is about money and space. But when we talk about the building your own lab is thinking about, okay, what's your brand? What's your, basically this is business. Like what is your brand? What are you bringing that is very unique? So when you are out and about, people, communities will be like, oh, I remember you. You have this butterfly in a brain. And I'm like, yep, that's us. So that's, I think that that's my answer because no one told me how to be like that. Well, that's amazing that you were able to create your own lab, regardless of all the obstacles that you had to go through and then barely having any resources and your own community kind of built here. You brought it with you and created your own new community here. So that's very inspiring to hear. And like speaking of obstacles, like what have been some of the problems that you faced getting your services out to the underserved populations that you serve? Yeah, uh, that can take a full... (laughs) 
right? <laughs> but <clears throat> I think that the the main uh, um, obstacle in is that when it's understanding that acad academia as an institution uh, was built not for us nor by us. So when we're talking about my biggest uh, obstacles is that when we talk about my own professional development and what accounts for getting promoted or what is like scientific advancement is always writing grants, writing papers, collaborations, and that is key, you do. Um, but the type of work that we do in community engagement and from uh, academic senate um, perspective, and this is across all universities, community engagement and community science is considered service per se, not research. So my biggest um, challenge has been to convey to the university and the department and, and different um, individuals, faculty member is, I need to ensure that I'm always alongside communities and doing community engagement. And this is where we bottle heads because they're worried that I won't be advancing in my career without understanding that I, like community is my career. And I just have to be very creative of how do I navigate that kind of like structure that tells me that I shouldn't be in community. Never. I shouldn't, I shouldn't mentor. I shouldn't be in community. I shouldn't be, be doing this podcast, you know, like talking to you. It's like I need to ensure that I'm like always in my computer, always writing, always analyzing data. Um, and that has been my biggest challenge. Like my biggest challenge, because I think that this is what keeps me grounded. So I don't lose sight of what's important to me. So yeah, that's a long story uh, short to tell you the biggest barrier. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. So I know that you target minority communities, specifically Latinx. Mm -hmm. So have you encountered any undocumented individuals? And then what fears might they have regarding care in a hospital setting? Mm. The answer is, Absolutely, yes. Because um, in LA County, I'm pretty sure that you have been seeing the news and the border and our children and our adults. Um, so we do have a very large um, community um, that are not citizens. And, and I think that the challenges, obviously, what you encounter is obviously is, is fear, right? So that, that's aspect of, you know, if I become visible, then you will know who I am. And that puts me in jeopardy in my family's um, livelihood, right? So they, that, they have that fear, they have that reservation. And obviously it's completely justified because we are living in a, in a very peculiar, uh, particular anti-immigration um, policy and practices. And ICE continues to be everywhere, right? So when we talk about 
health access to healthcare. This is a, a, a conversation that multiple faculty members in different hospitals continue to um, engage because our, our communities, we, we, we can start with the basics. They, they don't have the documentation, right? And for example, they might not have health insurance. And they only if they and they don't trust doctors, they don't trust hospitals per se. So this is where like brain health and longevity is it's it's like intersects because they will and, and they are essential workers. So they're working all the time in very harsh conditions. If if we want to talk about our <clears throat> our communities in the agriculture, like farmers and so forth, like construction. So they're working all the time and, 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 and they need to pay their bills. So I, when we talk about basic needs, the society has been creating this perfect mess with policies and laws that actually doesn't allow our communities that don't have the privilege to be like citizen documented um, for them to never think about the, their health per se until there's a crisis. But when there's a crisis that is too late already. So it's like, oh, you have a crisis, you, you solve it and then you continue. Um, so that's something that I have been seeing a lot uh, with the mistrust, obviously, and, and the access to care, not only access to care, but the quality of the care. We don't have enough physicians that are that look like us, that speak their like our different languages. I'm bilingual, so I speak Spanish. And 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 that makes a huge difference. It's like how you're trained, who you are. Um, in our communities, when we talk about, for example, with UCLA, something that I talk to my students and trainees is, can you imagine? coming from Bakersfield or just South LA or East LA in those freeways <clears throat> where you can be pulled, out, pulled over by a, a police officer um, just to go to Westwood to get care. But then when you get to Westwood, um, you might be followed and discriminated against and the hospital is next to the like UCLA PD department. So it's not a safe environment at all, a safe environment at all. So why would they, why, why will our communities risk their safety for, for, for a healthcare that they cannot even certify is going to be good? Yeah, these problems are very systemic. So that is an even longer conversation to have. Mm-hmm. And I'm just praying it gets better one day for everyone. I don't know when, because honestly, it's looking a little rough right now. Um, I do have hope because yes. you all are part of the conversation now. Mm-hmm. So so that's the part that I, I definitely say yes to talking to you both because, you know, <clears throat> our younger generations are on it, mm-hmm. on it. And they're not mincing their words. They're like, I'm going to call this out. And, and, and I know that to me is beautiful to see um, because our literature continues to be mostly white men. 
and we like in the whole white fragility and you know tiptoeing around their um their expectations and their biases is for me is a is it's not my job to make you comfortable right so that's why I'm like I'm so excited for all of you because you're going to be pushing boundaries and we need that we need that Exactly. I'm glad that it's being talked about a little bit more because in the readings that I do for my classes, they're actually saying how our major is actually racist and how it's built upon white men that are just creating these theories. We need to think about who's creating these theories. And when we're looking at people, we can't just look from one lens. We have to look at things like intersectionality. So thank you so much for sharing. And I guess that like kind of leads perfectly into like the next question, um, you know, talking about this younger generation, what steps can we take as like college students and also just kind of as we emerge into uh, the workforce to address inequities and promote access to health care um, that's equitable and can get to everyone? Mm -hmm. I want to say that because I, I have different thoughts in my mind, but if I have to summarize it, continue to build community among yourselves that in communities where they accept you with everything that you bring to the table and all your intersectionalities so you can uplift each other but also challenge each other when when a bias comes in because we're all biased we're by product of this structure right so we are by product of our parents and our parents and that's all we can talk about intergenerational trauma and abuse in our families and the, the trajectories i think that the most the one crucial thing is making sure that we are kindly challenging each other to be the best people that we can be um with the understanding that when we talk about dementia or um brain health we what I'm what I'm hoping is that we continue to shift the conversation from blaming our communities for increasing the ch their chances of mental health or dementia or every or cardiovascular risk, risk factors, right? Because when we challenge the conversation of like we need to talk about structures, who's in policy, who's creating the laws why segregation happening why is it that our communities of color um there's like this redlining things that no one talks about but in our communities of color all the industries where pollution are like located but in westwood and brentwood they don't have it but they do have you know organic very expensive food but in our communities you have like a fast food chain every single block mm -hmm. you know so we're talking about our our, our young generation is like i think that you are all more attuned to these realities that have been hidden in plain sight to call them out and to understand that all of this actually impacts our mental health our spiritual health our physical health and therefore our brain health so I think that that's what I I I love to say. 
I honestly agree with you 100%. I definitely think our generation is going to change things. We are seeing things the way it is, and we are definitely saying it how it is. Um, regarding your LLab, I was wondering what you think the future of it is, and then how do you see it expanding in the next coming years? Ooh, this I love this question because I was actually talking to my team. I've been talking to my team about it. In the in the past, since this, um, we founded the lab, we were very intentional of like, okay, what's our position? And we don't want to impose anything. So we just focus on, you know, engaging with community members, caregivers, patients, stakeholders, doing webinars, just to figure out, just to get the sense of what's happening in our communities, understanding that our community has suffered a lot with the pandemic and COVID and the working with racism and discrimination and laws and policies and government and all of that. And we know we wanted to see it's like, okay, we can talk about prevention. We can talk about all of this, but if our communities are still suffering and grieving and losing family members, what we do doesn't matter, right? So we were like, oh wait, what's the landscape? What's, what's happening? And now that we have a better understanding of what's happening, because we have been building that trust and trustworthiness, now we are actually partnering with community members and stakeholders to build programs, evidence-based programs that will actually meet the needs of our different communities, right? For me and my lab, <clears throat> I'm a psychologist, um, and I'm also a neuropsychologist, so I love the brain. I will talk brain any day if you let me. And we want to enhance the awareness of what's the brain? What, why, why is it important to talk about the brain now? Right? We, I wasn't taught that way when I was in high school or, or college. Like your brain is just your brain, right? But now it's like understanding that the bill is moving um forward on understanding that we acquire um some like like brain pathologies across our lifespan so it's key to talk about brain health now and how is sleep making a role your your what you consume taking a role the water or lack of water um, the movement, the sun, the sun is very important for your hippocampus and engaging those conversations, but also make it systematic. So then we have a program that we can prove that works with uh, like inside community and then communities can actually take ownership of that program and carry it by themselves without even me being part of it. So what the, the how I see it moving forward my lab is community empowerment. It's like, I'm going to leverage the limited resources that I have been given and just reckon with a lot of challenges <laughs> on a daily basis to ensure that you're empowered and that you know your rights and that you have a voice and that you don't need me for this. Mm -hmm. So that's the way that I see it. That sounds perfect. I look forward to seeing how LLab or involve 
develops. <laughs> so I actually have another follow-up question. If there are students that do want to be involved in the LL Lab or communicate with you, how do they go about that? No, absolutely. So um, I love this question because I had to also, I love mentoring. Uh, and I actually, in a different conversation we can have later, uh, I manage a whole mentoring program at the national level for neuropsychologists, like mm -hmm. uh, Latinx, Hispanic um, neuropsychologist trainings. So, we're, so in terms of how to find me, we're actually building our website so you can easily find us. Mm -hmm. um, but right now, if you, if you um, just UCLA LA Lab in Neurology, the, the overall Eastern Center of Alzheimer's will pop up and our contact information will be there. Uh, you'll likely be in touch with Stephanie Ovalle Eliseo, who is uh, uh, my right hand, and she is a UCLA grad. Uh, so, so she will love to continue to work with our undergrads to keep this work moving forward. So I wanna say website for the, for the time being, and you will get in touch with, with Stephanie for sure. And yeah, Perfect. and then we will <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, thank um, you so much. Oh, sorry. Thank you so no. much for like sharing all of this today. I think it was very like insightful. And I think like um everyone who listens will definitely like benefit a lot from what you said. Yes. Thank you for everything, Dr. Diaz Santos. So long to our fellow Heme Sapiens. We look forward to seeing you next time. Bye. And it goes a little something like...